This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. What do you think about when you think about attachment parenting? Well, first of all, it's kind of a hot-button topic. It's right up there with vaccines and breast versus bottle feeding. It, for a lot of people, it conjures up notions of family bed, extreme baby wearing, and mothers and children who were kind of creepily codependent. Some people are deeply devoted to attachment parenting, but for a lot of other people, it's usually the cause for a lot of eye-rolling. There's a new approach out there, and it's called the circle of security, and it's different. Yes, it's about attachment parenting, but it's not that kind of attachment. It's based on the idea that infants' strong bonds with their parents lead to healthy social, emotional, and cognitive development. The circle of security is the brainchild of three psychologists, Kent Hoffman, Glenn Cooper, and Bert Powell. And one of them is going to be our guest in this part of today's show. And since they brought this thing to light more than 20 years ago, they have helped thousands of families across the globe and we're going to be talking about things like how to balance being nurturing and protective with promoting your child's independence. What emotional needs a toddler or older child may be expressing through difficult and annoying behavior. And even how your own upbringing affects your parenting style and what you can do about it. All that and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I built secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes, I did the same things over and over, until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kent Hoffman, who is the co-author with Glenn Cooper and Bert Powell of Raising a Secure Child, How Circle of Security Parenting Can Help You Nurture Your Child's Attachment, Emotional Resilience, and Freedom to Explore. Kent, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about what attachment parenting is. I think people hear about that, and whenever I hear it, I think of Dr. Sears' philosophy of where your baby uh what what is attachment parenting about well <clears throat> let me start by clarifying our work is not attachment parenting no i understand i just want to yeah, set the stage right. of what it's not before okay, we go in yeah. specifically what is attachment parenting yeah um <clears throat> i'm not sure i'm the person to uh qualified to answer that because i've not studied it all that well there is that sort of misperception on the part of many people that it is a series of techniques which I don't think it is. I think it, it involves a fair number of techniques, but the foundation of it is an understanding that relationship is central to uh, how a child develops. And I think it's, it's, it's founded upon that understanding that um, you know, capable and caring caregivers, parents, um, alter the trajectory of a child by how it is they offer the care. So they're is an emphasis, as 
best my understanding on a certain number of techniques like wearing the baby or sleeping with the baby or right. a number of other things. Um, and that's quite different than what we're... Right, but you're still using the concept of attachment as, in right. a, as and, a central and to, concept. So Right, and to some degree... Um, those of us in the world of attachment research, which is like 50 years old, feel some concern about the fact that attachment parenting uses the term, but it's not based on research. And um, so the, the term attachment then gets associated with, with our work and the research aspect of the field. And um, we think that that kind of blurs boundaries and makes people, well, it, I think it's quite confusing, actually. No, it sounds like it's quite confusing. Yeah. So, yeah. so give us your your sense on what attachment is. We'll skip the parenting part. Sure, sure, sure. Um, attachment is is innate within all mammals. It's how it is that we seek relationship with caregivers, especially early in our life, to make certain that we are safe and secure. And um, it's, a, it's a lifespan issue. Um, infants are, of course, coming into the world absolutely requiring caregiving. But um, elderly parents, many people listening to this have elderly parents, and they are also seeking competent caregiving. And throughout the lifespan, this is, of course, what um, it is to be involved in a romantic relationship or a marriage. Um, we're always looking for a sense of, of safe connection, which is another word or another phrase to describe attachment. Within the field of attachment research, and it's based on a theory begun in the 1940s by John Bowlby, who was a psychiatrist in Great Britain, um, and then the research began in the 1960s by Mary Ainsworth at Johns Hopkins University and then eventually at the University of Virginia. Um, the research aspect of it is a way of studying what the specific components of attachment are. And um, that's now almost 50 years in the making in terms of understanding the key themes that must be a part of a healthier, secure attachment. Which are? Um, there are three key themes that we track. Um, a caregiver who is uh, strong and, and fully competent and in charge in a kind way. A caregiver who supports the child's need for autonomy and it, and simultaneously supports the child's need for comfort and soothing. When a caregiver is in charge uh, in a kind way, is utterly supporting of the child's autonomy and uniqueness, and also utterly supportive of the child's um, need for soothing and comfort, you're going to have a pretty secure child. So what is it mean exactly to support independence or autonomy? How does that look? Yeah. I mean, infants in the first weeks of life are actually beginning to make bids for autonomy. They'll look at a caregiver for four or five seconds, ten seconds. Um, their heart rate will begin to increase pretty dramatically, and then they'll need to look away. And that's a sign of autonomy. That's a way of saying, I love being connected to you, but now I love and need to be on my own for a little bit. And now after seven seconds, I'm coming back to you <laughs> and making that eye contact again. And that kind of a loop can happen, you know, hundreds of times a day. And, and literally in the first weeks of life, a child is beginning to explore autonomy. Now, as a child gets older, say at six months of age, a child is very focused on uh, looking
looking out and recognizing the world and coming uh, kind of alive to the to the colors around them and all the things that are happening. As they begin to get mobile, they get more autonomous and spend a little bit more time away from the caregiver and then make these bids to come back. And, you know, it, it takes place until kids are teenagers, and then they go further and further away in terms of exploring their autonomy. And then, of course, again, they need to come back and be reassured that their, their, you know, their secure base and safe haven are intact um, until they eventually leave home. And that leaving home is taking with them the sense of connectedness that's built into that support for autonomy. Now you talk about the nature of imperfection and yep. recognizing it and embracing it to a great extent. But talk about yep. what you mean by imperfection. I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to make mistakes and not everything right. is going to turn out the way that we want it to turn out. But how is that part of attachment? Well, again, attachment is really about whether or not we're all attached, whether it's secure or insecure is the issue. Secure attachment is the capacity to trust that my autonomy is acceptable to those around me and therefore it's a part of myself and my need for comfort and soothing is a part of uh, the equation and people welcome that and I've built that in hundreds of thousands or literally millions of times by the time I'm one or two years of age. Um, and I've got that track laid down deep inside of me. It's kind of uh, the, the download that I get from the relationship. That's based on bids for autonomy and bids for connection and soothing. And when those go well, I end up being secure. Now, the research is kind of cool here because when they don't go well, uh, which they don't much of the time because caregivers are busy or they're in a bad mood or whatever it might be, and the autonomy isn't interesting to the parent or the comfort and soothing isn't something they can offer, that's okay because that's called real life. The imperfection piece is that we don't honor that bid. We recognize we didn't honor it, and we seek to repair it, and that's the rupture and repair process that, again, has been beautifully researched. And when I am a caregiver who recognizes my child came in for comfort, maybe they're a 2-year-old or a 12-year-old, and I was too busy and was on my cell phone or too busy uh, reading the paper, whatever it might be, and I tell them not now or I'm not interested, then I recognize that and I seek to repair it. Where we repair a rupture like that um, lets the child know we're deeply intentional about the relationship, and it actually makes the relationship stronger. So it sounds like you should do these things every once in a while, but just not well, make it a habit. Yeah. In other words, we never recommend a caregiver uh, rupture on purpose, my goodness. But but how many times a day, whether it's in a couple relationship or it's in a, a parent-child relationship, do we rupture? Hundreds. Yeah. That's okay. I mean, again, the research is saying if you, if you can get it right 30% of the time, you're going to probably have a secure relationship. So it doesn't give us carte blanche to go out and and not be available, but when we're when we're not available and then recognize we can be um, and make it known to the child that we want to be, that builds and deepens the relationship. Now, in couple relationships, of course, this is equally valuable. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about kids not learning to fail and parents jumping in and stepping in and, and picking them up when they don't need to be picked up, helping when they don't need to help. It seems like this is is almost that that by by you're calling it a rupture, which makes it sound much more severe. 
But, you know, to say, look, you can handle taking care of your own needs for a few minutes. Absolutely. And that would be, if I, if I picked my child up every time they failed, that would be not allowing them their autonomy. In, in, you know, again, that would be coddling the child. Right. Saying, oh, my goodness, I, you, 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 your feelings are hurt. I've got to take care of you. That's hovering. That's not, that's not soothing. Soothing is when the child makes the bid, and oftentimes, and we trust the wisdom of the child, they welcome opportunities to struggle, and they welcome opportunities to be allowed to struggle. Parents are the ones that don't allow those opportunities to take place because they spend too much time worrying that their child's going to be damaged in some way. So there's a kind of a nonchalance that is no nonsense, but it's also deeply tender. When you put no nonsense and tenderness together, you've got something pretty powerful. Talking with Kent Hoffman, who's the co-author of Raising a Secure Child, How Circle of Security Parenting Can Help You Nurture Your Child's Attachment, Emotional Resilience, and Freedom to Explore. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk some more. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Kent Hoffman, who's the author of co-author of Raising a Secure Child. And want to get into some of the specifics, Kent, of the circle of security and, and what sure. makes that method so unique. So lay that out for us. Well, the circle of security is unique only in the fact that we have brought simplicity to the complexity um, that all the attachment research has been working on for 50 years. We're standing on the shoulders of so many other researchers. We're researchers ourselves, but 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 we're standing on the shoulders of you know John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and Jude Cassidy and I mean there's just so many people out there doing so much work, and um, <clears throat> they've been kind enough to work with us to bring us to the kind of clarity we've got. And then our model was created ideal initially to work with high-risk parents. I, for example, have spent more than 20 years working with homeless teen parents. And, you know, when you're working with teen parents, especially who've been homeless, you're going to need to find a way to communicate with them pretty directly and with some degree of clarity instead of, you know, bringing in research to them and talking theory. So that's why we created the circle. And the circle is simply a graphic that looks a bit like an elliptic, you know, it's, 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 it's a... It's an oval rather than a circle, but we didn't want to call it the oval of security. We'd never have gotten anywhere. <laughs> so it's, the, it's an oval, and on the far left-hand corner, there are two hands which support a child's exploration on the top, and they offer uh, comfort on the bottom. Um, and uh, when the child goes out on the circle, they go out on the top to explore, and that's the autonomy piece. And when they come out on the bottom, they're seeking... Uh, comfort and delight and and connection and children just walk around that circle hundreds literally hundreds of times a day literally actually thousands of times a day once parents see the circle they go oh that's like no duh I, I that's the nature of our relationship bingo that's the issue now our work is also based on uh, you know we're clinicians so we noticed that parents even quite healthy parents struggle either on the top or the bottom of the circle. They either struggle with allowing enough autonomy or they struggle allowing enough comfort. And it just seems to be human nature that we struggle in, in one of those two areas. And um, 
you know, so that's the work. It's recognizing the template and then recognizing where we struggle in the circle. Now, how do you how do you describe to people that they can be the hands on the on the circle? It almost sounds like a clock face, but so how how yeah. do you how do you describe or at least describe to people how they can do that? Sure, the hands are the. If one were to see the image again, there's just two hands at the far left hand corner of this of this this uh, oval, and um, the, the hands represent what we call bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind. So that's being in charge in a kind way. Um, Again, that's its own kind of sub-theme in our work, which is parents who can be bigger and stronger and not being kind end up being kind of mean. And parents who try to be kind but don't want to be bigger and stronger end up being weak. In either case, you've got problems in the relationship. So we ask parents to pay attention to how they are the hands. Can you balance bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind and not go to mean or not go to weak? And then can you support autonomy on the top and can you support comfort on the bottom? Those are the three main questions. Yeah, I mean, when you see that, there's a, a nice graphic of it, or there's several graphics of it. it happens to be on page 63 if you're you're looking okay. for one of them. Uh, yeah. But I'm just I'm, I'm talking to the the listeners there. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it is a, a very graphic concept of yeah. having yeah. your child go off, and we all know that from having you know, having little kids around. From you know they right. they want to crawl off someplace, and then they come Absolutely. back, and they want to make sure that you're going to still be there. And yep. then they go further and further and further away. So it becomes less of a circle. It's probably a circle at the very beginning. But the, as as you mentioned, you know, the older they get, the the more extended the oval becomes. They go out for yep. longer periods of time and then come back. Exactly. Um, right. And, you know, healthy teenagers know they could go out pretty far, and they know they're welcome back when they want to come back. That, that's part of the key of being a teenager. But what's interesting about it, if you look at it graphically, is that the parents are kind of on the outside of the circle, uh, or they're part of yeah, the, the side they, of it. I they, mean, they're not in the middle, is what I mean to say. They're yeah, not, yeah, not, they're not in the middle. That's yeah. very well said. They, they, they are there to support and allow the child to make a lot of these decisions. So the child makes the bid for autonomy, the caregiver responds. You know, in the research, we call it attunement, right? The child makes the, the bid for comfort, the parent responds. The parent isn't running the show. The child is running the show but not in terms of being in charge of the relationship, just in terms of saying, now this is an autonomous moment, now this is a comfort moment. You know, a lot of us, not speaking specifically to my, about myself, but a lot of us as parents have history, and the history may not have been so fantastic with our own parents, and we don't right. have a model for this. Right. How do you end up being able to implement something that's, uh, that looks, at least on paper, so simple when you just don't have any... Any way to recognize it when you see it? Yeah, yeah. As I said a few minutes ago, that you know, my working with very high-risk teen parents who didn't have a model. You know, they came from families of abuse and neglect, and they had no template. What's so rich for us is that within 20 minutes of showing them what we've just been talking about, they go, "Oh, I didn't know that. Now I do." They trust it because it's research-based. They they say oh, that just makes sense because it's intuitive. And then we add the second piece, which is, as a parent, you're going to struggle someplace. You may struggle with hands. You may go to mean pretty quickly, or you may go to weak pretty quickly. Um, Or you may struggle with allowing your kid to have their own mind and do something on their own. Or you may struggle with your child making bids for for soothing. Now your job is to, with with this roadmap, 
to make sense of what piece or what pieces of the roadmap you struggle with. And um, by normalizing struggle and not making it pathology, people are, are more than happy to look at it. You know, most of the book um, is about honoring the fact that we struggle and then giving parents a very clear way to sort of you know, recognize the specifics of how they struggle. And again, not, no condemnation, no shame, just like welcome to the club. That's part of being human. Let's work on it. What's the hardest part for you to get this across to people? Well, I, I, it's interesting. I, it, part of the reason I think I ended up working with high-risk teens is because they were very open to hearing this information because they basically were saying, you know, if I was going to be good at this, I wouldn't be here, and I'd like to be good as a parent. Um, the hardest part is with middle, upper middle class families who are actually quite defensive about the fact that they may be making a mistake, and any implication they are suddenly makes them sort of, uh, you know, push back at some level. So the hardest part is for the families who aren't necessarily secure but think they have to be, and, and it's this whole need to be perfect in our culture. That's where the problem is, and that's the hardest part of this work. You'd think that there'd be also a lot of buts in there. You know, the ba- a lot but, of what? Buts. Not uh-huh. what you're sitting on, but B-U-T. You know, it's like, uh-huh. well, but I, I, I would want to do this, but I can't, or I want to do this, but I don't want to let my child fail, or, or I, I, sure. I'd like to do that, but there's something that comes, comes sure. in there. Yeah, yeah. No, th- you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's the art of um, recognizing what that but is about. So what is being defended there? What is, what is the concern about um, about lo- allowing my child to be more independent. What's the concern about, um, you know, some parents are like, I don't want to offer my child too much comfort because they'll get spoiled or they won't learn their numbers or whatever it might be. And then, then we get to go underneath that a bit and look at what that's about. We attempted to do that in the book. I don't know that it can be done in a book, but we attempted to sort of uh, address these issues that parents bring and the butts that they bring, the concerns that they bring to being less than perfect. Addressing that turns out to be probably as important as anything we can do. Yeah. I mean, there's this part of it, I guess, is not on, not a but necessarily, but the, the uh, well, it was good enough for my parents or it was you know good enough yeah. for me, and it, yeah. it builds right. character as, yeah. Yeah. as an excuse Absolutely. for not satisfying one end of one hand or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that 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 is a that's a great point, which is if if it was good enough for my parents, it's good enough for me. Part of what I think is intriguing about this particular model is it says, "Well, let's give you the data. Here's what happens when when what was good enough for your parents and appears to have been good enough for you. Here's what happens and how it shows up in some insecure ways." And then here's what happens when it's more balanced and how it shows up in secure ways. Now, that kind of gets in somebody's face, but at, at some level, that's what we do. And at some level, that's what the book does. Um, I wouldn't encourage anybody to read this book if they're feeling like they are either doing things already perfectly and they don't want that challenged, or um, they feel like they're just going to spend all their time feeling defensive. 
Kent Hoffman's the co-author with Glenn Cooper and Bert Powell of Raising a Secure Child, How Circle of Security Parenting Can Help You Nurture Your Child's Attachment, Emotional Resilience, and Freedom to Explore. Kent, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate being here. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio, take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. It's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, and this week we're going to talk about the talk. No, no, not that one. The other one. The one about money. Dear Mr. Dad, my parents never talk with me and my siblings about money, but I'm feeling the need to give my kids, ages 4 and 7, a better financial education than I got. When's the right time to start? What is it about money that no one wants to talk about it? Drugs, sex, and violence are perfectly acceptable dinnertime fare, but we're almost always embarrassed to discuss something that we use every single day of our life. How much we make and where that money goes after the government gets its share is nobody's business but our own, and perhaps our accountants. But that's a mistake. Today's kids feel more entitled than those of probably any previous generation and too many of them don't learn simple lessons about finances, such as how much work it takes to earn a dollar, how much goes for taxes, how much goes for rent and food, how much their violin lessons and daycare cost, and how much they should be putting aside for retirement. The place to start is with income, and with kids as young as yours, it's probably going to be an allowance. But be sure you don't give them the impression that you're paying them for doing routine household chores, cleaning the rooms and setting the table for dinner, are things that they should do because everyone in the family has to contribute. For older kids, they should start earning their own money. Either way, once they start bringing in money on a regular basis, they need to know that there are only three things to do with it. Spend it, save it, or give it away. For young kids, one way to reinforce that idea is to set up three jars which they can decorate and label charity, instant gratification, and savings. Have them take a small portion of their income and put it into the charity jar. Let the kids decide who or what should receive it. Equally divide what's left over between the two remaining jars. I recommend jars because the kids can actually see their money and how it grows over time. The instant gratification fund is exactly that, and your kids should be allowed to spend it any way they'd like. Fight off the urge to direct this spending or to give them advice. They're going to learn a lot more from an empty jar or a pocket or a broken toy than from your pearls of wisdom. The savings jar is for more expensive items. Most kids will figure out pretty quickly that they can move their instant gratification money to the savings jar. For slightly older kids, add a fourth jar called for college with the understanding that they won't see the contents until they're at least 18. For tweens and teens, you may want to throw in lessons about borrowing, interest, and taxes, but only if you feel confident discussing those more advanced topics. When those jars start getting close to overflowing, take them and your children to your bank. 
Most have free savings and checking accounts for kids of regular customers. They're betting that over time, those early relationships are going to grow to include retirement accounts, credit cards, and mortgages, and all sorts of other stuff. Teaching the basics of money management today with small numbers will prepare your children for the future when the numbers and the stakes will both be much bigger. By encouraging them to set and prioritize financial goals and guiding them in the early days as you manage their money, or as they manage their money, you could be heading off a big headache for them and possibly for yourself when they eventually strike out on their own. Hey, you know, if you've got a comment or suggestion about this or any other topic we do here at Positive Parenting, please drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet. As you know, there's a lot more really great positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. We're glad you stayed with us. Let me introduce you to a word we're going to be throwing around an awful lot in this part of today's show. It's entitlemania, which describes the state of mind in which children believe they should have anything they want while also believing that they shouldn't have to make much of an effort to get it. Remarkably, we parents who are responsible for creating these children are typically unaware that our actions are the single cause of entitlemania. And entitlemania is an epidemic. And well-meaning parents, such as ourselves, across the country are enabling the me generation of children who just lack the wisdom and satisfaction of accomplishment that only struggle and adversity can bring. As a veteran advisor and legal counsel to some of America's most successful families, Richard Watts has seen the extremes of entitlement up close, and he's here in this part of today's show to help us avoid creating it in our own children. We're going to be talking about how to redirect kids and repair adults, that might be the most important part of it, who believe the world owes them something. Your greatest challenge here may be learning to control your own actions. The big lesson here is that we may need to let our children fail so that they can learn how to succeed on their own. We'll start talking about entitlement and how not to spoil your kids when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Dear John, I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is serious, and I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to when you checked on me? I don't want to leave. But remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. 
Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range today. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Richard Watts, who's the author of Entitlemania, How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do if You Have. Richard, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Armin. Thank you. Let's start with having you talk a little bit about what entitlemania is and how it differs from the what people have been saying, you know, kids these days. People have been saying that for thousands of years. Yes, I, in, in title mania really is is talking about teaching your kids they have the right to have something. In other words, the entitle mania that I'm looking at is kids that that grow up with a sense of believing that they have the right to things that perhaps they haven't earned, and perhaps they haven't uh, worked for, uh, and versus you know an empowerment situation which is different, uh, where people are being taught, children are being taught they have the ability to go get something. They have the opportunity to earn something, two different things. So, so Entitlemania deals with that issue of children and what in the world are we doing and what are we failing to do in order to give them a sense of self. Well, I'm curious about where this whole thing came from in your view because it seems like if you talk to anybody over the age of about 40, it's a completely foreign concept. The, the primary uh, place this came for me is in my representation uh, as a family office Council. I'm I'm managing very uh, wealthy families. It's kind of a laboratory of sorts where uh, where the the parents are oftentimes 60, 70 years old now. Uh, albeit they're they're dealing with kids that are 30 and 40, and uh, and they have a little bit more money than the average person. And I came to find out that that the mistakes that they were making uh, utilizing money was just an accentuation of what all of us do. And, uh, and so it began to become very repetitive and very interesting to see that parents were making the same mistakes. And then when you look down into the world of the, of the rest of us in the middle-income area, uh, you begin to find that, that, that we're doing the same things. We're, we're trying to give our kids everything. We're focusing on them. Uh, and we're trying to take away the pain, everything we yeah. can do to take away the pain. Well, isn't taking away the pain kind of one of the high up on the list of definitions of what parenting is supposed to be about, though? I don't think so. I, I think that's some. Okay. I think that's something, Armin, that we started that we got lost in in this last generation. Uh, I think that parents, if you look back a generation ago, kids were not the primary focus of of parents. Uh, parents were primarily focused on their own lives, and kids had to fit in. And so you didn't have the mom and dad going to every soccer game. They didn't have the mom and dad that when a when a child didn't get uh, you know didn't get a participation trophy, they were in the coach's face uh, to try to to, uh, to to benefit them. They said, hey, the the life is full of tough tough issues, and if you work hard, uh, you will you know you'll survive. And and somewhere in the process, uh, my generation grew up believing that our parents didn't care about us quite as much because they didn't show up. And so we decided we were going to do this incredible focus 
on our children, and we're going to give them a lot of our attention. And in doing so, uh, we started to think that loving them was synonymous with not allowing them to learn from their mistakes. And so we started bridging the gap of getting them from A to C instead of letting them feel B in the process. No, that's interesting. I think it's true. I I had a certain sense that my parents didn't care too terribly much when they, I don't think, and they have to straighten me out about this, but I don't think that they showed up for swim meets or baseball games or that kind of stuff when I was involved in after-school activities. They, They did show up for concerts that I played in, but they like music better than they like sports, I guess. Um, well, I, I think you just said it. Uh, you just said it exactly. They showed up for music because they liked music. Uh, I'm glad to hear you were a swimmer. I was a swimmer, too, and water polo as well. And, uh, and I can tell you that I swam in the, uh, the AAU finals, and that was the only meet that I had in the entire time I was in high school that my parents showed up. And yet I will tell you that my mom and dad loved me to death. I mean, they were <laughs> so proud of me. Uh, but it was kind of more about encouraging me as I made mistakes, and they were—they seemed to be more interested in me overcoming adversity than they did about doing things I did naturally well. Now, do you think that kids are being overtly told by parents that you deserve something without having to work for it, or is this something that they just pick up? I, I, I think that kids pick up what they see. They don't hear what they're told as much. So if you've got parents that are modeling uh, that, that you know, life is difficult and, and, uh, and they're delaying their own gratification, uh, you know, I really would like to have that car. Uh, I, I probably, maybe I could afford it now, or if I can, I could put it on time. Uh, I, can, I can spread those payments out over 50 months, and even if I lose my job, I'm in trouble, but I'll take that, that gamble. When they see parents doing those sorts of things, I think there's a tacit uh, discussion going on between parents and kids, and, uh, and, and that's what I hear from most of my kids is that, uh, uh, and kids meaning the kids that, of the families that I'm involved in for the last 35 years, is they really say, you know, mom and dad say this, but mom and dad do completely different. And so they watch those things. And so... I, I don't know that it's overt that we're told that, that we're entitled to things, but it really is uh, parents aren't going out of their way to you know, to allow that uh, that that adversity and uh, and some of the pain to just leak in. Just just watch it coming and say, now I'm going to go get a, a belt and I'm going to bite down on that leather <laughs> while I watch my kid go through this pain, and I'm going to just try to let him figure it out. And as he does, I'm going to say, you know, that was a good solution. That that was pretty good. You got to there without going, oh, I'll tell you what, let me just tell you how to go from A to Z. Let me let me help you jump. So you talk about an aggravating factor to this whole thing is parents trying to be kids' friends instead of maintaining some sort of hierarchical or at least parallel structure. How does that fit in there? There, I, there's a choice you have to make uh, that I think we've tried to, to saddle. We've tried to grab both sides of this and, and sit in between these, and that is being a parent and being a friend. Uh, we all would love to be the friends of our kids. Our kids can have a lot of friends, and, and I, use, I hear the term all the time where parents are saying, you know, my, my, my boy or my, my, my daughter is my best friend. I think that's a real danger signal that, that uh, you really have to, in my mind, make the choice it's very difficult. We have superior knowledge over our children. 
We have superior ability from experience. It's very difficult for us to to allow ourselves to be friends and do the difficult things that need to be done as parents. So I'm a fan of going to your kids and saying at all ages where they understand it, you can go get a best friend in a lot of different places. And I'm hopeful that you have a lot, a lot of friends. I choose to be your parent. And in the process of being your parent, I'm going to love you, but that love is always not always going to look like friendship. It's going to look like strife and difficulty. There's going to be some things you don't like. And if you're young enough, you're going to do what I say because you're 12. And if you're older, which I, when my kids turned 18 and 20, I, I very clearly sat down with them and said, now I'm in a position where what I say you don't have to do, but I'd like you to listen because I'm going to be your parent the rest of your life. I just don't expect you to follow my advice unless you want to, because I really encourage them to be their own people. You know, I had an interesting exchange with my 13-year-old. We're talking about where she's going to be going to high school, and she's got certain ideas, and I have certain ideas. And she sends me this text a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, you don't respect my life choices, and, you know, you're not being a good father. And I just think it, how... First of all, where does a 13-year-old get off thinking that she has, has made life choices? I mean, it's a little, a little young for that, it seems to me. Right. How, how do you respond to something like that? Well, when a, when a 13-year-old says that, I think you have, as the parent, a responsibility to, to really carefully recognize that every one of your children are different. Uh, some may come off with, with uh, attitude, and, uh, and you know, I, I'm dropping out of school, and I'm going to travel on a steamship to Europe— in which case maybe you need to exercise a little bit more discretion, maybe a little more pressure if you feel truly that child's just whimsical and, and, uh, and, and going to get themselves in a position of long-term peril. Um, but when you get to someone at that age, I remember that very vividly. All three of my boys were very different. And I sat down with them, and we had a discussion. And I said, look it, are you willing ultimately, if I listen to you truthfully, are you ultimately willing to – allow me as your parent to make that decision at 13 years old. You're not old enough to make that decision, but I want to hear you. And, and I have to tell you, uh, there have been circumstances, uh, particularly when they got to 18 and went to college, where I knew exactly where I wanted my kids to go to college. And, uh, and every one of them went to a different college than I wanted to, but it was part of me biting down on that leather belt, right, right. saying, you know, I, at some point, I've got to recognize that my child, when it's born, I need to begin raising it with the idea in mind that I'm putting my boy or girl up for adoption at 18 to the world. <laughs> so I really have to prepare him or her, and part of that is having that discussion of, of, uh, of really having them understand what their choices are. I can understand, Armin, where you'd not like the word life choice, uh, but I do like the idea that She's grading at you a little bit because somebody's trying to fight for their individuality. Yeah. They want to yeah. be different right. than what everybody else is telling them to be. And so I think it, it takes a clever parent. Forget the friendship. You know, it takes a clever parent to help navigate that and recognize right. what part of that is just a recalcitrant child and what part of that is really exercising the desire to say, hey, Dad, I don't want to be an attorney. I want to be a dancer. And you think, oh, my God, terrible right. choice. Well, Let's talk about that. Maybe, you know, let, let's let's think about all the different possibilities from there. I think thirteen years older, thirteen year old can be pretty sharp. I think you'll agree. 
Talking with Richard Watts, who's the author of Entitled Mania, How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do if You Have. We're going to be taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Richard. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Richard Watts, who's the author of Entitled Mania, How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do if You Have. Uh, so let's start getting into some of the specifics. You've got the book divided neatly up into sections about what to do and what not to do. So you talk about number one on the list of what to do has to do with delaying gratification. How do you work on that one? Well, de- delayed gratification, as I said earlier, is a lot about what you do and what you model. But uh, I, I can give you a good example uh, of this. Is this last Christmas, uh, my five-year-old granddaughter uh, got fixated on having her mother and father buy her one of these Hatchimals, which I'd never heard of before, but it's some sort of a 59-year-old retail gift uh, that no one had because they, there was an incredible viral run on them, and they were nowhere to be found. And I, I watched Mom and Dad uh, looking, showing up at 7 o'clock in the morning at all these department stores, I called a few because I thought maybe I could be the hero grandfather and, uh, and pick one up. Uh, but ultimately, Christmas came. And I remember sitting uh, in the living room and, and thinking, how in the world is a little one going to deal with the fact that she just, that's all she wanted. Every time she sat in a Santa, Santa's lap, that's what she said. Ultimately, she opened her presents, and I had her come over, and I sat next to her. And I said, sweetheart, did you get everything you wanted? And she said, well, no, actually I didn't. And I kind of swallowed, and I thought, here it comes. She said, I didn't get a Hatchimal. And I said, well, what do you think about that? She says, well, you know, my mom and dad told me that there's a lot of kids that need these things more than I do. And some kids really are deserving of those kind of things, and and they don't have the presents that I get, and I got other presents. So I'm really okay. Maybe I'll get it later. But for right now, I know that Santa wanted someone else to have that gift instead of me. That's pretty sophisticated stuff for a five-year-old. Yep. Or a 10-year-old, for that matter. Yeah. All right, so you you hit on something there, the word grandfather. We'll just broaden that to grandparents. How do grandparents contribute to this whole problem? Because it seems like almost all grandparents would say that they love to spoil their grandkids. And they yes. end up giving this. So, so do you think that this idea, the, you know, the idea that grandma and grandpa are spoiling me and giving me whatever I want, whether I deserve it or not, uh, well, you, fi- you can, aggravates things? You, you can take that in two different places. You can take that on a kind of a shallow level, which, which is okay. That's grandma and grandpa giving them candy. And when they come over, uh, you know, when they're a little bit older, buying them, uh, buying them things and taking them places or handing them $50, you know, without, without – uh, you know, without anybody knowing, just to give them more cash, that sort of thing. Those are those are relatively harmless. Uh, grandparents, which I believe are a blessing, I think grandparents are an incredible gift if they're intentional grandparents, uh, which I'll explain in a second. But when grandparenting gets to that place later on, where a grandparent is actually parenting their grandchildren, which means, uh, you know, we're going to go buy you a car, uh, I think that's really, really not good. Uh, when grandparents are going to uh, tell their grandkids, oh, by the way, Grandma and Grandpa have a house, and, uh, and we want you to know that uh, when, when Grandma and Grandpa go away, you're each going to get $100,000 from Grandma and Grandpa, and these are 18 and 20 and 22-year-old kids. Really not good. 
not not advisable. Yeah. Uh, grandparents have to be very careful to recognize their place is subordinate to the parents, and so we as grandparents are always very, very careful about making sure that we abide by the rules of our kids, and we've got several, and grandkids from different different sons, so they're very different. And again, it takes a keen sense of recognition to realize that my primary job as a grandparent, Armin, is to give experiences to my grandkids, not things. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like there's also kind of the, the interplay between the grand, grandparents and then their own kids, not the grandkids, the, the generation in between. Because I had a friend who every once in a while would tell her kids that, oh, you know, we're going to be inheriting a whole bunch of money. So it just became part of her her present-day financial planning to count on having an inheritance, which just made me, just creeped me out. I it just It seemed like the most horrible way to be running your life was to be counting on somebody dying later. And you know that one of the chapters of Entitlemania is dedicated strictly. I know. I, sa- I believe I saw that, that you do not share your estate plans with with uh, with your kids or your grandkids, or e- even yourself. In in many ways, it just seems to be counting on something a windfall from someplace else seems to be, in a way, almost playing out what you're talking about with Entitlemania. It's just saying, I deserve this for no particular reason. Yes, and, like and you, that you should... again, look to the generation. Above, So if it's the children that are 15 and 20 years old saying that, then look to the parents at fault, in my opinion. If you've got the kids that, uh, you know, at, at 30 and 40 and 50 saying that, which many of them do, you have to look to the grandparents, the, the 60 and 70 and 80-year-olds that oftentimes, and I hear this, this is an area I spend a lot of time, where the grandparents are kind of manipulating uh, the kids and the grandkids with, uh, guess what you might get if you're good to us. You know, you have a chapter in here, too, which touches on something I remember came up very specifically in, in discussions with my oldest daughter, especially when she was looking at colleges, and she was aiming towards some pretty high-priced ones, and I had a conversation with her at one point about, it sounded a little bit like my, the one I just described with my 13-year-old, but it was, you know, I can't afford to send you there. I've got X amount of dollars saved up in a college fund, and that's what I've got. And she was saying, well, you know, I'm not going to let your financial issues interfere with my education, which I thought was a wonderful line. And then I, my counter to that was, well, I'm not going to live in my car so that you can, <laughs> you can have the education that you think you need. And you, you talk about that exactly, about, and, you know, got a whole chapter about don't sacrifice yourself to make life, life easier. So how do you draw the line between the natural wanting to give your kids things maybe that you never had with just reality. Yeah, the whole first section is 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 devoted to to uh, to checking uh, your attitude, your own personal attitude, and taking care of you. And I still believe that uh, that that line is determined by your quality of life, and that mom and dad are here first. And mom, be it single parent or married, have the right to live their lives and live their lives comfortably. And beyond that, I think you're sending a poor signal to a child at college age when you say to them, I'm willing to mortgage my house, I'm willing to sell my house and move into a, I'll rent a trailer, Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to send you to, you know, any school you want to go to. Uh, There's there's a lot of kids that I know uh, that have not had parents that could afford sending their kids to really great schools, and somehow, if they wanted it bad enough, they all got in. 
And if they didn't get in, there was something that was created in that, in that struggle. There's a number of my friends that, you know, didn't get to go to the Ivy League schools, and it created a thirst. So can you imagine setting something in motion today by just saying, I can't afford it, and I really love you, I would love to afford it, I'd love to pay, but I can't, and, and dad needs to take care of himself or mom needs to take care of himself. Can you imagine that you're setting in motion a domino that is going to start ticking and one's going to fall over to the next, to the next, to the next, and somewhere 20 years from now, again, that child is going to have whatever that education struggle was about, whether they got to the school and were able to pay for it or student loans, all of my kids had student loans and got through where they wanted to go. But it would be awfully rewarding, I would think, as a parent to look forward and say, you know, later on, perhaps, as scary as this thought is, even after I'm gone, they were able to make a decision or they climbed their way to a place based on the fact that they didn't just get it all given to them. Part of this was learning to grapple and to climb and look where they got. Yeah, I think the the sense of satisfaction that you have at having worked really hard for something and achieved it, or maybe even worked really hard and not achieved exactly what you were looking for, but just having uh, understood the value of work. But that's what, that's what this whole thing is about, is that, that lack of understanding or lack of appreciation for the value of work. Yes. Yes. And, and the simplicity that, that that can be implemented with, which sometimes is just do nothing. As a parent, do nothing. Just yeah. stop. This isn't a diet you have to go out and get 30 different ingredients and, and blend it every day. This is something where, for the most part, one of the greatest comments I ever saw was a, a very famous pastor in the East Coast that, that heard one of my lectures, and he said, uh, I read uh, your first book, and I read Entitlemania, and my kid called from college, and I just said, he said, Dad, could you PayPal me 25 bucks? I left the house, and it's midnight, and I've got a pizza, and I ordered it, and I can't pay for it. And the dad said, No. And the son said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, you go figure it out. You left without, without the uh, money, and you didn't eat like you should have eaten. It's not my problem, and it's so silly. That's such a silly event. But the discussion that came from that, and the child yeah. really came back to the Thanksgiving that followed and said, Dad, you know, well, that started a lot of things in motion for me by you saying no, that I really was careless. And then I realized the people around me were careless because they didn't have any money. And we had to work our way through that, and from then on, we just started eating back in the calf because we didn't want to spend our money on pizzas at midnight. Yeah. And, uh, and so, again, that, that little tiny beginning that starts a, a cause and effect. Richard Watts is the author of Entitled Mania, How Not to Spoil Your Kids and What to Do If You Have. Richard, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Real pleasure, Armin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.